Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who is a triple threat in the entertainment industry as he's an accomplished writer, director, producer. He got a start in film and television by interning on Ken Burns' 1995 Emmy Award-winning outstanding informational series, Baseball. In addition to his work with Burns, which included jobs on Cornerstone and The West, he worked for filmmaker David Grubin, producing Money and Power, The History of Business for CNBC. He also directed the Emmy Award-winning Jack, the last Kennedy film in 1993, produced with his brother, Peter Davis. In 1998, he wrote and directed 1999, a black comedy feature film starring Jennifer Garner, Dan Futterman, and Amanda Peet, which aired on the Sundance Channel. The film was screened at over 20 film festivals worldwide. Besides his father, who we already mentioned, his grandfather was Herman J. Mankiewicz, who co-wrote what is considered by many critics, filmmakers, and fans to be the greatest films of all time, Citizen Kane, which is universally praised for his cinematography, music editing and narrative structure which have maybe have been considered innovative and precedent sending his film Ted Williams the greatest hitter who ever lived marked the first baseball subject in the series 32 year history of PBS's American Masters series his latest film Once Upon a Time in Queens is a four part documentary series it's centered on one of my favorite teams of all time the 1986 Mets one of baseball's most dominant and iconic teams. It is a pleasure to welcome back Nick Davis to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. It's always our pleasure because, you know, every time we speak to you, there's not enough time to talk about so many things. So before we get into the film, let's talk a little bit about your career. We mentioned in the open about your dad and grandfather, but in baseball terms, you really are the Griffies or the Boons of filmmaking. Your grandfather, who passed away before you were born, co-wrote, as we said, one of the greatest films of all time. Your dad, Peter, is an author, novelist, and journalist. His film, Hearts and Minds, about the American military action in Vietnam, won the best feature documentary in 1974. Uh, your brother is a TV writer. Your great uncle was the late Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who set a record by winning a pair of writing and directing Academy Awards two years in a row. Your cousins include the late screenwriter Thomas Mankiewicz and current film cre- critic uh, Ben Mankiewicz. That's an awful lot of talent from one family. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages within the industry when you come from such a historic you know, film legacy line? Uh, well, I, I don't know. I, I, yes, there are, of course, disadvantages in that how could you ever live up to some of those things? I mean, how could you ever write anything nearly as good as Citizen Kane? Interestingly, Mike, I'm not sure if you know this, but I actually have a book out right now that just yes, came yes, out what... the exact same day as, as the documentary series. It's called Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a, a dual portrait about Herman and his brother Joe. And I think it gets at the heart of the problems and challenges of having this kind of family because nothing you do will ever be good enough. Um, even even if you come from loving parents, as I did, you know, it, 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 there is a sense of like, you know, you just can't compete. And then on the other hand, um, it opens doors in the industry. And I remember Tom, my cousin who did 
pass away a few years ago, I remember him telling me, what's great is you can get your foot in the door, but you better produce because if you don't, uh, you're out faster than, than maybe another person who they might, you know, give extra, extra time to. But if you're not going to live up to, in his case, his father, Joe, like he'd be, you know, out on his keister. So, Nick, this is AJ Card. You actually started working on competing with many years ago in 2003. So aside yes. from the advice your editor gave you, take a little, some of you out of the book, uh, as a character, how else did the book change over the 18 years? Was it mostly a matter of approach, or do you find additional facts and anecdotes? Uh, it was mostly the approach, and I think just a certain level of like coming to accept that I was actually writing the book. Um, I kind of backed into it. I had pitched it as a documentary uh, about Herman and Joe and their two uh, careers and lives and, and also centering on their two great two greatest movies, Citizen Kane and All About Eve, uh, because it's sort of my contention that All About Eve is unwillingly, unwittingly or not an, an unconscious autobiographical uh, you know, portrait of Joe himself. Joe as the younger, scheming, cold, calculating artist. Eve taking down the more beloved, self-destructive, charismatic, older artist, Margot Channing, with Herman as the sort of Margot Channing figure. Anyway, I pitched that to American Masters. They said, oh, that's interesting. You can start work on it, and here's a teeny bit of money to get you going. And to make a long story short, I then sold it as a companion book. The documentary went away, and I had a companion <laughs> to a non-existent <laughs> film. So, you know, and then I just had this albatross for years and years and years. And as you were saying, like, I, I couldn't find a way in. It was very dry and dusty. And I was writing, but it was very – it was boring to me. And and then finally I had what I thought was a breakthrough. And it was, in a way, of, of putting myself into the story and telling not just their live stories but mine – and, you know, I finished that book and I thought, I've done it. These three great lives, you know, two of them obviously well-known and mine less well-known, but still a life. And I gave it to my editor and she said, great, this is what you had to do to write it. Now take yourself out of it. And when I did that uh, about a year later, because I was really resistant to that suggestion, I read it through one afternoon and thought, oh, I see. I now have a point of view on these two guys' life stories, which the original dry version did not. Um, and so, you know, and then it was a matter of just, you know, digging back into the research and, and writing it properly. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, I was working on other things and, and um, you know, obviously wasn't writing every day. But I did set aside at least two considerable chunks of time every week to work on the book. And, and that's how ultimately it got done. Interesting. You know, for years, Citizen Kane has been a staple of film studies classes from high school to college to graduate school. How many times had you seen a, that movie in a classroom setting? And how many of your teachers were unaware that you were Herman um, Mankiewicz's grandson? <laughs> well, that's interesting. I don't think, I don't know that I saw it in a class. I saw it, uh, I saw it, you know, I saw it at home and I saw it, um, you know, at, at, at theaters and repertory theaters. And I saw Roger Ebert used to do this thing where he would talk you through a, a class. And I went to him while he did it once and we didn't get very far. I mean, he was, it was so great. He would just like stop at every frame. And I doubt we got, I don't think we got out of the sort of opening uh, newsreel. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, you know, it's funny that you did this. And he was like, well, why didn't you tell me beforehand? I was like, <laughs> oh, because uh, I don't know. I, um, but uh, no, I never, I never actually studied Citizen Kane or All About Eve for that matter. Uh, I just watched them both a lot, especially, uh, well, you know, once I, I got out of college, actually. 
So another movie, Mank, is a 2020 American biographical drama film about the development of the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Did you see the film, and what if so, what did you think of the director, David Fishner's use of black and white as an homage to the film itself? Well, I thought it was beautiful. I mean, it was it was gorgeous. I did see the film. I saw it actually three times uh, with captions on every time. Uh, there's a lot stuffed into that film that... Um, you know, if you're not the grandson of the man, I don't know how you can possibly follow what's going on. It took me three times to really understand, like, everything that was going on in that movie. There's so much jammed into it. Uh, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's an absolutely beautiful and loving homage to Citizen Kane and those kinds of films of, of the late 30s and, and early 40s. Um, yeah, I thought it was just stunning looking. So, talking a little about you and your career, you actually got your start right out of college doing improv comedy. As you settle on a career in reality-based films, how did that experience help you deal with the surprises that can come from filming interviews? Oh, well, that's a great question. I, it's funny. The first thing I go to is in Once Upon a Time in Queens, um, Keith Hernandez's cat. Um, we, you know, the, the, we, we filmed, uh, Keith outdoors initially. And, uh, you know, there's two interviews in the, in the, in the film. Um, and he's outdoors wearing a yellow shirt for, for some of it. And then, uh, it was on the waterway in, in Florida and it was just too loud. There was somebody mowing his lawn and there were boats and we were like, all right, we're coming inside. He changed his shirt, gave it a different look. And the cat was there. Haji was there. And, you know, people on the set were like, well, where can we put the cat? We got to put, can we put the cat in a little, you know, in a separate room and close the door? And, but he, the cat was happy walking around and jumping up on, and, and I just said, no, 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 the cat's fine. And I think that had I maybe, had I not had background in improv and knowing that like, no, accidents are what make things great and special. Um, you know, then we wouldn't have had Haji in the film, and I'm I'm incredibly happy that we do, because uh, he's I mean he becomes like a, a sort of running character. He's creepy. <laughs> At times it is creepy. It's like Keith's emotional support animal while he's talking You're about right. his issues with his dad. Right. But all right, yes. so, so yes. let's yeah. let's move on to Once Upon a Time in Queens. You looked at you look at the success that the Last Dance documentary on Michael Jordan and Bulls had, or the current Ken Burns Ali series. Both of those subjects. Um, you know, because the Bulls with Jordan, it, it's national. You know, it's not just Chicago-centric. The Mets, and, and given the you know, point that it was 1986, I mean, there's that built-in New York Met fanatical fan base. But as a filmmaker, do you have to tailor that a little bit to have a wider national appeal? No, I, at least not consciously. I was just interested in telling the story, and I knew that from from my point of view i was like well this is a great story why has it never been told in long form documentary um i think that i was really focused on telling the story as best i could and if that leads to a national audience liking it great if it's only met fans who like it that's too bad i really want this film to be able to play to people who didn't like the mets don't like the mets didn't like didn't know don't know baseball um, you know, we had a couple of screenings, uh, public screenings outdoor in New York before it, it, it aired. And, you know, my favorite thing was a friend of a friend who is a, a woman from Ireland 
who doesn't even like baseball, just tagged along because her husband was out of town and she had nothing to do that night. She tagged along with a friend of mine and had said to him, like, I'm not going to stay for both hours. They played the first two episodes. And not only did she stay, but she came up afterwards and was just like agog because the characters are so good. And it's the characters and in a movie that, that make it worthwhile. And so even if you don't know, you know, a double from a double play, you know, wow, this Daryl Strawberry guy, he's really interesting. Lenny Dykstra's fascinating, and Mookie, <laughs> yeah. and all of them. So, so to me, I didn't think about, well, what can I do to make this appeal to a national audience? I just was, it was always about what is the best way to tell this story of that particular team and time and place. Because to me, no team, no sports team has ever captured its time and place the way the 1986 Mets did. So Jimmy Kimmel's Kimmelot is one of the producers of this project. It's their first foray into the documentary space. What was their role in the project? And did Jimmy himself have any, you know, uh, creative input? Uh, yes, he definitely had creative input. Their, their role was great. When, when we first hooked up, uh, we were just about ready to take the, the film to market when, through a crazy set of circumstances, it you know, we were thrown together and it was like, hey, do you want Jimmy Kimmel, who is a huge fan of the Mets and a huge fan of the 86 Mets in particular, do you want him and Cousin Sal to be part of this? And I said, well, let's have the meeting. And we had the meeting and and it became clear, like, not only is he going to help sell this in the room to buyers, whether it's whoever we go to, but he's going to help promote it. And he's super smart and successful in the entertainment world and is going to give fabulous, interesting notes. And he did. Uh, he watched every cut. He also helped us get, you know, get access to celebrities. You know, it, it, I'm not saying we would have not been able to get some of these people, but when you have Jimmy Kimmel on your team and you're calling John McEnroe or George R.R. R. Martin or Oliver Stone or any of the sort of celebs who, who were meaningful in New York City in the mid-'80s, and you, you want them in the film, Jimmy's name can only help. So he was enormously helpful. And, and he had one really great note when he saw the first rough cut, uh, which was just, we sort of put that up in the, in the editing room board. You know, it was like more New York, more New Yorkers, more 1986. And that, that may sound really obvious, especially now that the film is done. But, you know, when you're really trying to tell the story initially and you don't have a narrator and you're trying to weave it all together, I think we did possibly in those early, in those early cuts lose sight of the fact that, like, what made this special was the New Yorkiness of it all. And, and hammering that home and making sure the music of the times really popped to the front. That was like, that was Jimmy's big note when he uh, saw, the, saw the first cut. And, you know, he had all kinds of little cuts too, like get out of this scene earlier, whatever it is. Um, he, he was terrific to work with, really fun. To that more New Yorkier um, and more um, of the time, I thought the use of the film The Warriors as an early thread in the film was very interesting. The film's release date, interestingly enough, in 1979, falls pretty much right smack in the middle of the Mets' 1973 World Series appearance and the 1986, you know, plus one mm -hmm. of the film's main characters was named Cleon, so nicely done there. Um, what was it about the film The Warriors that made it important enough to use within the framework of the early portion of the, the, the film? Well, there were a couple of things. As we talked to people about their vision of New York in the 70s, two guys on the team brought it up independent of each other. Ed Lynch and Dwight Gooden both said that their vision of New York City was this scary movie, The Warriors, where guys in Yankee uniforms were going to beat you up. And, um, and, and, 
And the fact that the Mets were terrible at that point and the Yankees were the dominant team in baseball, it seemed like, well, that's natural in the early part of this film when we're talking about the late 70s and how scary the city was and how the Mets are, you know, these this sort of terrified underdog. That felt really right. And then by the time the mid-80s roll around and it's the summer of 86 and the Mets have become the dominant team in town and it's the Mets who are beating everybody up and pounding everybody, then it was sort of like this wonderful sort of I became what I beheld, you know, that line from <laughs> The Untouchables, where the Mets have become the dominant team and the Mets are beating the crap out of everybody. So it felt fun for us in the film to reprise the Warriors and sort of suggest, yeah, it used to be that they were scared of these guys and now they have become those guys. You alluded this uh, before with Keith. So I, I felt one of the subtle nuances in the film was a lot of the interviews were shot outdoors, whether it be Wally Backman on his yearly camping trip, Daryl Outdoors, <laughs> yeah. Lenny obviously poolside at someone else's house. Uh, and, definitely and not, not his. Jail, which is uh, <laughs> um, Ray Knight, Kevin Mitchell, Calvin Chiraldi at the ballpark, while others such as Keith were one shot in, one out. Uh, Doc inside, Darling inside, O'Heater, and Davy Johnson are inside. The outlook, the outdoor look was different than what you're accustomed to in documentaries. And I really felt that it worked really nicely. So was that intended or was that more of a function because of COVID? And what effect did COVID have on the actual budget? Um, well, that's those are great questions. Yeah, I was very happy with the outdoor look, uh, but it was purely COVID. Um, we, we, I, well, I shouldn't say that I always like shooting outdoors if possible. Um, but it, it can be too loud. And that's what happened with Keith, which was before COVID. Um, most of the indoor interviews with a couple of exceptions were, were, were shot pre COVID. Uh, Ron Darling was post COVID. There were a few others we were able to, to squeeze inside, but it was for the most part, once COVID hit, it was very challenging. It, it, I mean, it was, it's hard to complain. I mean, you know, we were allowed to continue to work on something we all cared passionately about, something that I obviously have been dreaming about for years. So I felt enormously lucky that I got to work on this every day, uh, despite the little production hiccups. The real problem in terms of the budget was that typically in a documentary, you'll say, okay, we're going to do two interviews today and we'll have these two people come to us here or we will go here and then we'll break down and drive somewhere else and go do it. It meant we couldn't do that. We could only have one interview a day. So we'd originally planned on getting about 60 interviews in the can, and we ended up with only 44. Not that 44 isn't enough to tell the story. It turned out 44 is plenty enough to tell the story. But there were a few other interviews I think we would have done had we not been uh, had, had COVID not struck. On the other hand, there were real advantages because of COVID, Lots of those interviews were filmed remotely. You mentioned Lenny Dykstra. Yes, we had a, a rental house in Los Angeles. He went to that. I was in my office in New York City zooming in. So they place a laptop with my image on it right next to the camera. And it looks like he's talking. Well, he is. He's talking just off camera to an interviewer. But he's actually talking to me 3,000 miles away. And I think it helped focus some of the interviews more than might have ordinarily been the case, especially if we'd been filming outdoors. Um, so I, I think it was, you know, it, 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 
it, it helped us and, and it hurt us in, in different ways, I think. Given Lenny's history with rental yeah, houses, 3, 3, I hope, miles away yeah, I, I hope you did have a good security person okay. to, to get him out of there quickly. <laughs> um, so, so you just did mention about the 41 and the 60, and I assume that you make that list of all the important people you want. Um, so how do people like Cindy Lauper and John McEnroe make it in? And were there players like maybe Jesse Orozco, Hojo, Danny Heap from the Mets, or Mike Scott, Charlie Kerfield, Billy Hatcher from the Astros, Clemens, Stapleton, Bob Stanley, or Hurst from the Red Sox? Were they some of those interviewed or were just, you know, were some of them, we know that Forster declined to, to be interviewed, but um, were some of them just not available or did it just become that you had so much material already that you felt it was enough? Yeah, it was a little of both. I mean, some of those people turned us down. Mike Scott turned us down. Jesse Orozco turned us down, wow. unfortunately. I think I think had it not been for COVID, I would have reapproached Jesse Orozco, but he turned us down so early um, that by the time we sort of circled back around, I felt like I don't have time to chase Jesse Orozco. He would have been great, but we've got the story working well without him. I think he was, he felt, and I think some of the other Mets did too. Oh no, not this again. And this is going to be so negative and it's all, you know, the drugs and the drinking and, and, you know, yes, that's part of the story, but we wanted to tell the complete story. I really did view this all along as a big epic story of a team and a time and a place and how it had emerged from the malaise of the late seventies into the, the, you know, sort of the heyday of the, the go-go eighties and how the city seemed to be doing so much better and the team was doing so much better. And those two things were kind of in lockstep. So some of the players you mentioned did turn us down. Uh, and then some of them, we just, we didn't have time to get, um, I felt like there was somebody else maybe on the Red Sox side that, that, uh, turned us down. I can't remember, but, um, but you know, you know, it, the first cut of this, of all four episodes totaled six hours and 25 minutes. Wow. We, we did a lot. <laughs> yeah. We did a lot more with the Red Sox in, in that version. And at that point we still, the other thing that was complicated about not to go too much into the weeds on the production of this but typically you shoot just about all your interviews before you edit. And because of COVID, we weren't able to do that. So we had started the edit well before we completed the interviews. So we woke up one day and had a six and a half hour rough cut and had to get down to three hours and 20 minutes and hadn't completed all our interviews. But at that point, we knew, all right, there's no way we're going to be able to do all of this. We're not looking for more Red Sox at this point. We still haven't talked to Ron Darling or Roger McDowell. Um, and so that was, you know, as, as the whole thing shaped itself, uh, it sort of told us where we had to spend more time and attention. There's always Disney plus for the, uh, six hour version for sure. Right. But, um, it's also interesting and, and, you know, it, this resonates a little more with me now that you, you mentioned, you know, the Kimmel, you know, more New York, um, of all the people that covered the Mets in the day, the one that makes it in the film is Anne Ligori, who tells an absolutely awesome story about George Forster. So awesome that I actually doubted it, and I you know, went through my newspapers.com and were able to find one article that makes mention of the fact that Forster was there. Um, you know, he mentioned not to go anywhere. This game's not over. Um, but why Anne over a guy like Howie Rose or Sal Marciano, Marv Albert, Len Berman, who are clearly much more synonymous with New York and the Mets than Anne is. 
Well, those are all the great questions, and there's no good answer. It's not like um, you know all those guys were on long lists, and Howie was on you know even shorter lists. Uh, the the real thing I wanted to do is keep the focus on 1986 in New York City, and Howie Rose, as great as he is, and I yield to no one in my love of Howie Rose. I don't think he's associated with 1986 New York Mets. I associate him with other teams, and I felt he was going to bring a kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, just instant baggage that I worried was, was going to tilt the thing in the wrong way. I was not here to be the official historian of the New York Mets telling the 1986 Mets story. I was here as a filmmaker, an outsider telling that story. And I, I just had that concern about Howie. Not that we wouldn't have gone to him if I didn't also have people like Jeff Perlman and Greg Prince and Eric Sherman who have written about this team telling me the history. Once I had the history down pat of everything that happened, I was a lot less worried about, well, let me go get a, you know, a beat writer or, or, or Howie Rose to fill in the history. Because at that point, it was, well, now we have to make sure we're telling the New York story. Now we have to make sure we're getting the players in and, and, and you know, telling this in, incredibly exciting and dynamic time in New York City. And that's where, and look, reasonable people can disagree and say, well, that was a dumb choice. What are you doing spending money on Cindy Lauper when you could have spent mm -hmm. money on Howie Rose? But actually, those, there was a, and no one has asked about this, which is fine, but you kind of did. There was a different style chosen for the sort of quote-unquote celebrities. It was handheld. They were really inexpensive interviews. It was a one-man crew and me zooming in. It wasn't a sit down where you're spending a good deal of money and doing a whole thing, which we would probably have had to do with somebody who knew the whole history the way any of the beat guys did. So um, anyway, that's that's how we arrived at it. You know, that gets to one thing I want to ask you about. You know, just as interesting to me was some of the other people in the documentary. So I get Jeff Perlman, Eric Sherman, Roger Angel, but there are other people who are not baseball people, not notably identified city people. They talk about commentary. They put you know, the, the, the team and the city and its place in history. So how did you select these, what I would call general societal commentators? How important role do they feel in making this a special documentary? Well, to me, it felt like you can't tell the story of this, of this team without telling the story of the city. So I, who, who tells, who can we get to to speak about New York City in the 80s? It didn't matter to me if they're not a baseball fan. Let me talk to Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson made Spy Magazine in the summer of 86. That was like so important, culturally speaking, Spy Magazine. And he was there, you know, he arrived in the late 70s and saw what happened to the city. So I wanted to talk to him. And when I talked to him first and said, you know, he said, I don't know anything about baseball. I said, that's fine. You know, I want you to talk about the city. And if, it, if we don't use it, we don't use it. Everything he said about 1980s New York City, he thought he was talking about the city, and I heard it. He's talking about the Mets, too. The swagger, the, 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 the bravado that the city had, the drugs, the nightclubs, all of the stuff he talked about was about the 86 Mets, even though he didn't know it. So that was kind of reinforced what we had thought going in, that like, God, this team and this city, they were one. They it, Perlman said they blended into each other. And, you know, so that's why we, and John Strasbaugh, fascinating New York historian 
who, in a crazy coincidence, was turned out to be Daryl Strawberry's ghostwriter for his autobiography. <laughs> so here's a guy who can talk, you know, chapter and verse about New York City, who also knows Daryl Strawberry and knows Daryl's, you know, childhood traumas as well as anybody. So we, we it, that was what we wanted to do, you know, every step of the way was tie the team, not in a forced way. It just it was true. The city and the team were one. So I'm sure every Met fan who watches it comes away with different opinions as to how the players came across and what stories they told resonated with them. For me, because we have a personal connection with a, a bunch of the players, um, every time Nels was on, you had to pay attention and you knew he was going to be interesting because it's just Lenny. I thought Wally Backman and Davey Johnson were so down to earth and spot on with everything they said. Keith was so open about his dad on top of it with the family film. And like I said before, Haji played his emotional support animal. Um, his story <laughs> about Clement shaving was the first time I ever heard that, which was interesting. Um, Kevin Mitchell was also so animated. Doc's story was heartbreaking and riveting. Is there one story, one player to you that just blew you away? No, all of the ones you mentioned and Daryl. I think that um, I was, you know, uh, met fans of that time. Like y you had your guy. My guy was Daryl in the 80s. And so I, I actually, even though it was the height of the pandemic, I did fly to St. Louis. I said, that's the one we're actually <laughs> doing. I'm, I didn't come all this way to talk to Daryl Strawberry through a laptop. And so I spent uh, the whole day with him in St. Louis. Again, we, you know, he changed his shirt midway through. So it may look like two different interviews. Um, and I just felt like well, this guy has really changed. I mean, he's he has perspective on his life story that very few people forget ball players. Very few people can talk about their own childhood and their and their early twenties and all the sort of lost and horrible, you know, abusive behavior that he engaged in. Uh, he talks about with such wisdom and clarity uh, that it was just I, I was really awestruck by that day. Um, but I mean, it, I, I, everybody you named, I thought did a terrific job. And, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, I was thrilled as a Met fan. I had all kinds of different reactions. Like, why did we never hire Wally Backman to manage this team? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, we, so yeah. the, we ask that every right. day. <laughs> so the latter part of the documentary chronicles the, how Frank Cashin almost immediately started dismantling the team that he had built. How different a film do you think this would have been had, say, the Mets come back to win in 1988 when the pitcher they couldn't beat was Ronald Hershiser instead of Mike Scott? Would that have made the project different and the film different? Oh, totally. Yes. I think had they won more than one, it's a very different kind of story. It doesn't have the tinge of heartbreak and uh, what if and the sort of disappointment um, that has been baked into the franchise for the last 35 years. I, I think that, and, and this sort of, you know, Halley's Comet comes along wrong once in a generation. It came along in 86 and will it ever come again? You know, that, that thing, which is so, you know, as a, as a storyteller, filmmaker, that's so great as a Met fan, it's a misery. Um, and, and yet I did come to a, a better appreciation of what they actually had accomplished by the end of it. Um, I did feel like, you know, they gave us three amazing, memorable years and, and the rest were memorable too. I mean, 87, 88, 89, 89 was a nightmare, but 90, <laughs> you know, they, they, there were, they, they were a great team for quite a while. And, 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 you know, they, they did their best. So, um, but yeah, it's a very different film had, had, well, it's a very different film if he brings in Randy Myers. I mean, you know, it's yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So I also know from doing my Kiner's Corner book that footage is very difficult to come by. The footage you have in this documentary is amazing, um, ranging from the scene in the Red Sox locker room as they scurry out before the Red Sox come in after the Mets come back, to Mookie coming into the clubhouse in the tunnel, and all the great Keith Hernandez home movies. Um, how, how tedious was it to, to try and keep track of all the footage that you came across? Well, it, luckily, it, it would have been very tedious if it had been all been up to me, but I had a tremendous team of researchers and producers on my side, and also we had a partnership with Major League Baseball, and they were enormously helpful in feeding us everything that they had. Um, and then sometimes it was just fans sending in home movies of, of like Game 3 of the, uh, the NLCS or you know the clinching night against the Cubs. We got great home, home movies from that night. Um, and and then sometimes it's just like on YouTube, like why can't, can't uh, you know someone please find me Ralph Kiner pronouncing Mitsubishi, you know? And so that it. we got <laughs> right. I know you have it. <laughs> that you know that came from YouTube late in the day where we finally found the, the, the holy grail of Ralph saying Mitsubishi. Um, so you know it was it was it was just a, a massive effort, um, but you know. Thankfully, uh, you know, the film industry has developed in such a way so that there are ways to organize things and spreadsheets and everything so that uh, we, you know, managed to keep everything uh, organized so that when the editors needed something, they were able to get it. And there's a companion book coming out. When is that coming out? Uh, that's coming out actually October 5th, and that you know that includes a lot of the stories that we just didn't have time for. Um, it's done in the style of an oral history, so it is all these interviews um, put together and people telling their stories. And so it goes, you know, it goes into more depth about a lot of the things that we cover in the documentary, and then just lots of great stories that we just you know didn't have time for, especially in the aftermath. But actually, all the way through, great stories from Ray Knight that. You know, the, the one I'm most kicking myself over not being in the film is a terrific story Ray Knight told uh, about stopping Daryl and Gary Carter from fighting on a team bus in St. Louis oh, wow. uh, in 86. It's like, we're, we're not going to fight each other, um, which was just great. And I think that spoke to what I think people missed, especially in management, about Ray Knight's right. importance to that team uh, as, a, as a unifying glue in the, in the clubhouse. Um, so anyway, so yeah, and the book is really fun. I actually just saw the book for the first time last week. It's gorgeous. It's got great pictures and it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I mean, obviously I'm proud of all of the work, but like seeing like the book people really step up and, and, and produce such a nice looking book. It's really cool. Kudos on the release date too, October 5th, because every Met fan is going to have plenty of time during the playoffs <laughs> to read the book. Um, I know, you know, the whole time we were working on it, especially the first couple of months of the year, I was place, like, this right is, now. I was like, this is going to be great. What uh, kismet, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, what's your next project? Uh, it's really too early to talk about, uh, but uh, I, I will definitely come back uh, and talk about it when it is, uh, when, you know, when, until contracts are signed, I just hate to talk about things. Gotcha. Lastly, are your daughters interested in continuing the family business at all? Uh, well, possibly, possibly. My older daughter in particular, um, she uh, loves storytelling and, uh, and, and has had not lots of internships and stuff uh, in the film and TV business. She's in college, but um, she, I think she's, she could be headed that way. My younger daughter, 
my it's too early to tell nice nick thanks for coming back with us we always love seeing your work talking about it with you more importantly thanks for helping me relive so many of those great memories of that season that ended with me and my late dad sitting on a season ticket section 114 box e seats three and four watching the mets win the world series oh wow good for you both game is six and seven Six and seven, and there's a great story. I'll tell you that off the air. I, and had you called me, it would have been, it would have fit perfectly. Uh, yeah, it was a, the reason why we. Yeah, I, we were at every. I've been to mostly every single postseason game in New York with my dad. You know, forever. Mm. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, so we really appreciate it. And I, I'll speak to you. I'll tell you the story. Great, great, great. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Our pleasure, Nick Davis, the director of the great new four-part series, Once Upon a Time in Queens. 